Well, good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you less familiar with me, my name is Paul, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, as we said, we're, we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you were with us last week, you know that that's a sermon series that we return to, that we're now progressing uh, through, that we started last fall. Um, so 1 Corinthians, if you're not familiar with it, is this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians at the city of Corinth. And in that letter, he's expressing concerns about the health of their church. The concern that we talked about last week had to do with a man that was guilty of living in sexual immorality. And if you go back to that passage, what you'll notice is that Paul is less concerned about the actual sin, and he's more concerned with how the Christians were reacting to someone living in ongoing sin. They were neglecting to confront it. So as, as we think about how people react to the sins of others, one of the best ways I've heard this described is that we can generally place people into one of four categories. The, the first category represents someone who has little concern for people and little concern for moral purity. And, and so when it comes to interacting with others in sinful ways, our, our reaction is indifference. You know, to each his own. Different strokes for different folks. Uh, even if another person does something objectionable, what business is that of yours to get involved? Let people live how they want to live. So that's little concern for people and little concern for morality. The second category is characterized by having little concern for people and much concern for moral purity. So when it comes to others acting in sinful ways, the reaction is judgmental. I can't believe how that person gossiped. Or can you believe what she was doing on Friday night? The Pharisees were examples of people that had little concern for people and much concern for moral purity. They, they had lists that detailed the sins of others. They knew how everyone else acted in ungodly ways. But they offered others little to no help while lacking compassion and love. Little concern for people and much concern for moral purity. The, the third category is the reverse. Little concern for moral purity and much concern for people. When encountering others adopting sinful practices or behavior, this response tends to dismiss the need to do things like repent. It rejects being angry towards sin. Rather than confront, this person typically dismisses shameful behavior because there are all sorts of reasons for it. I mean, they were hurt. They were born that way. They had a tough life. This is likely the response offered by the Corinthian Christians to this individual living in sexual immorality. 
much concern for people and little concern for morality. The fourth category is much concern for people and much concern for moral purity. This is the Christian response. Pastor Chris discussed it last week. When encountering others acting in sinful ways, we seek to encourage and enter in and challenge and confront. As an individual continues to sin, we grieve for them. We grieve what they're doing. And we get angry about it. It frustrates us. In the passage discussed last week, the Apostle Paul helped the the Corinthian Christians establish a practice referred to as church discipline to uphold this category. When someone persists in sin, they are to be removed from a church after being confronted multiple times by brothers and sisters in Christ in love. So in recognizing there are errors Christians make sometimes in reacting to the sins of others, how they can miss the mark, Paul spends some time in this passage further explaining church discipline parameters. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, as we explore what he's, what he's saying. This is uh, church discipline part two, if you will. And we're going to work to better understand a proper response to the sins of others. In doing so, we will, we're going to clear up what church discipline is not, clarify what church discipline is, and then, then consider some implications for us of church discipline. So let's begin with verses 9 and 10, clearing up what church discipline is not. This is what Paul says. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. So he's saying, uh, as we relate to people who persist in sin, as we relate to people who do not repent, one error that we can make is avoiding people we are actually called to associate with. After Paul explains a proper response for Christians reacting to someone persisting in sexual sin, that that proper response is to confront them and distance the church from them. This is what we talked about last week. Paul mentions a prior letter he told Christians to not associate with sexually immoral people. And after hearing that instruction, after hearing that that those words that were in this prior letter, apparently some of the Christians were using those instructions as a reason or as an excuse to avoid contact with non-Christians. They were seeking to shelter themselves from individuals who did not know God and lived very differently, right? Sometimes we're guilty of this. We seek to remove ourselves from relationships with those outside the church. In instructing God's people to miss, in instructing God's people to not associate with the sexually immoral, Paul does not want Christians to misuse his words to shun sinners 
or condemn sinners or avoid sinners who are not part of the church. He is explaining how he is a, a, not upholding a disposition of isolationism or separatism. So, so in clearing up that Christians are not to avoid relationships with non-Christians, Paul is affirming something Jesus prayed for his disciples just prior to his arrest in the Gospel of John. He says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners. As he was sent into the world, he sat with irreligious people. He ate with them. He was physically present with them. Ultimately, he sacrificed his very life for them. In his life and at the cross, all types of sinners are welcomed. None are shunned. None are excluded. As Jesus was sent to the world to declare and display the good news of the gospel, he says his, he says his disciples are also sent into the world to continue that mission. In continuing that mission, Jesus acknowledges it's going to be hard. But the enemy that Christians face is not non-Christians. He does not ask for his disciples to be protected from relationships with those who are opposed to Christ. The enemy is the evil one. They don't need to be protected from sinners, people outside the church. They need to be protected from the evil one. And to grow and to be sanctified, Jesus doesn't ask for success for them erecting walls or building barriers to shelter themselves from non-Christians, but rather to grow and mature in knowing truth, in knowing the word of God as they live in the world. I think many of you know, I mean, I, I don't think it's a secret, I am in the middle of a big transition. Now, I'm not talking about transitioning um, from working in healthcare to working for the church, although that is a big transition. What I'm talking about is evolving from being a young adult to a middle-aged adult. You know, you all see more gray hair recently in my beard. You'd see it on my head too, but I've already gone bald. I turned 45 last year. In the middle of this transition, I'm, I've been visiting colleges, not for me, but to help one of our daughters think through that next season of life. In one school that we visited, they only admit students who profess the Christian faith. During our tour with a college senior, I asked, what, what, what's the most challenging thing about being uh, at, at this college? And she said, it's the bubble. There are no non-Christians on campus. Her daddy is a pastor, and she knows that's not how Christians are supposed to live, at least long term. We're supposed to work with 
and play with and be friends with people outside the church. Church, as we live with people that can sometimes, oftentimes, be hostile to the gospel, you can find yourself among people you don't want to be with, who worship things other than the Lord, with radically different values, who do not live according to his works and ways. In establishing practices of church discipline, Paul is saying, may we never use concern for moral purity in the church as an excuse to shun sinners, to retreat from the world, to avoid living on mission or to proclaim the gospel. Don't live in such a way that you avoid being present in worldly places with worldly people. You have been sent to an earthly place to be situated among a worldly people to declare the gospel and to display the glory of Christ. Now the reason we treat people outside the church differently from someone inside the church is because we understand that those two individuals, they relate to sin very differently. Listen to how pastor and author Mark Dever explains the difference. I often tell my congregation that when it comes to battling sin in our lives, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that non-Christians sin, whereas Christians don't. The difference is found in which sides we take in the battle. Christians take God's side against sin, whereas non-Christians take sin's side against God. In other words, a Christian will sin, but then he will turn to God in his word and say, help me fight against sin. A non-Christian, even if he recognizes his sin, effectively responds, I want my sin more than God. We expect a non-Christian, someone outside the church, to not desire change or transformation or listen to calls to repent. And if they do, it's out of a desire for life to be better, not repentance of sin against a holy God. That person needs you to declare the gospel and display the effects of the gospel to them. A professing Christian who declares to understand the gospel. We expect that person to repent. We expect that person to listen when others confront. We expect that person to desire transformation and change. And so Paul's concern to distance ourselves from someone who persists in sin is restricted to Christians. Verse 11 says this, but actually, this is him clarifying what church discipline is, but actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So, so a second error we can make as we, re, re, excuse me. So a second error we can make as we react to people who sin is not avoiding people we are instructed to not associate with. The individual we distance ourselves from is someone who professes to be a Christian persisting in sin. 
That means this is not someone we have doctrinal disagreements with. This is not someone we have a personality conflict with. This is not someone we have disputes with personal preferences. Those do not need to be reasons to break relationship. Persisting in sin. Failing to listen to others. Not repenting. That is a reason. Paul mentions destructive sins like sexual immorality. Greed, idolatry, being verbally abusive, being a drunkard, stealing from others. But but this is not likely an exhaustive list. Bottom line, in choosing to persist in sin, this individual is failing to demonstrate the disposition of a Christian. That language do not associate with, most commentaries say is better translated Do not mix up together. Do not mingle with. Do not associate with in a close way. Paul seems to be expressing a concern about a formal type of connection rather than an informal one. So Paul is excluding someone from formal gatherings. Corporate, the the corporate church structure rather rather than excluding individual members from having contact with this person. If you were here last week, we said that Paul was affirming the final step of a process for confronting a Christian in sin. And this was a process outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18. Verse 17 says this, If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus was very much accused of being a friend of Gentiles and tax collectors. So if we're to treat this individual like a Gentile or tax collector, that does not mean we distance ourselves from this individual entirely. But we do avoid interacting with this individual as a brother or sister. That fellowship has been broken. So they are not participated, they are not permitted to participate in the Lord's Supper, in the sacrament of communion. If they were to show up at something like a gospel community gathering, we would not allow them to pretend to represent a disposition of a Christian. If they were to show up for our monthly prayer, we would not have them that them pray. There is a way that our fellowship in Christ has been broken. Now, Pastor Chris mentioned last week, by God's grace at First City Church, we have not come to the place of not associating with someone because of persistent sin. But I will tell you, in my years of ministry, I have been involved in several conversations working in this direction, and I really dislike those conversations. I mean, as a manager in the marketplace, I've had to lay people off. I've had to fire people because of poor performance. I've had to reassign people to jobs they do not like. I've had to enter into dysfunctional family conflict in the church and in my personal life. And this type of conversation is the one I dread the most. But what helps me is remembering this conversation is not about shunning sinners. This conversation is not about punishing people. It is about shielding the church 
and protecting God's people. A, a church that would dismiss someone persisting in sin. A, a husband who would repeatedly abuse his children. A wife who would engage in adultery. A father who repeatedly gets drunk and does not provide for his family. Uh, an individual who continues to sell or abuse drugs. Uh, a church that would dismiss such things is not imaging how Christians are to relate to sin. We said properly upholding concern for people and concern for moral purity is not an excuse to shun sinners outside the church. Likewise, understanding the gospel, understanding that we are saved by grace, understanding that we don't earn our right standing with God, that is never an excuse to sin. Someone who professes to be a brother or a sister, who professes to be a Christian, will listen to the counsel and confrontation of brothers and sisters in Christ. When that person continues to sin, he or she is demonstrating ignorance of what it means to be in Christ. Returning to something the Apostle Paul said in the first chapter of his letter to the Corinthians, we could say this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. In dismissing the significance of moral purity, some misunderstand the word of the cross. The cross is not an excuse to sin. The word of the cross is not is not that Jesus made peace with sin. Jesus defeated sin. Yes, we are all sinners who will not be perfected this side of heaven. And not sinning does not earn right standing with God. But that does not mean we tolerate sin or accept sin. We continue to see sin as wicked. Sin is the enemy. So we don't put up with sin we put sin to death. Not associating with someone who bears the name of brother or sister. That is not an action to shun someone because we are angry. It's not an action to shun someone because we are fed up and impatient. It is saying, friend, because of your actions, the word of the cross is foolishness to you. We're not saying you're not a Christian, but we are saying we can no longer affirm that you are. Now we draw this boundary of not associating with someone persisting in sin so that no one is confused about where this person stands with the church. We want, we want everyone to understand where this person is at. We want the person persisting in sin to understand they are not living as though they are a Christian. We want Christians who have been hurt by this person, by how this person persists in sin, knowing that is not okay. And the church does not dismiss such actions. And we want those who are outside the church community to understand that the way this person is living is not consistent with a Christian ethic or the Christian faith. Allowing an individual to persist in sin. 
now allowing an individual to flaunt the cross so they can live however they want to live, serves to abandon that individual, dismiss how others have been hurt by their sin, and it neglects the witness of a Christian to the world. Let's keep reading in verses 12 and 13. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So so as we rightly react to people who persist in sin, we understand our responsibility to people in the world, people outside the church, is significantly different than our responsibility to people in the church. Those outside the church, God is their judge. Christians do not have to be concerned about judging their behavior. Those inside the church, those are the people we need to judge or assess or evaluate how they are living. In light of that, let's consider some implications for us as far as what Paul is getting at. First, first, care about, care about the health of your church. Too often, rather than caring about the health of your church, rather than directing attention to what's going on inside the church, we pay more attention to what's going on outside. When brothers, and Christi- when brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling with temptations and doubts, even struggling with various types of sin, we fail to pray for them. We don't grab coffee and listen to them. We don't enter in and get messy with them. Instead, we are focused on things outside the church, like our jobs or our neighbors or our kids' activities or what's on Fox News or CNN or whatever news feed we use. We listen to podcasts We engage in what's going on outside the church and the evil of the world. We get angry and concerned about that. But we neglect issues of sin and doubt and growing in holiness in our church. Paul is saying, Christians, focus on what's going on inside the church, what's taking place in your own house, in your own family, and leave the world to God to rightly react to the sins of others, care about the health of your church. That's the first implication of what Paul's getting at. The second piggybacks off the first. Be committed to a church. If you pay attention to current events, you may have heard about a Gallup study that was released in March indicating the number of U.S. adults saying they belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That's the language the survey used. It wasn't asking if they attended a church. Fell below 50% for the first time since the percentage was measured in 1937. Which means commitment to a church is on the decline in our country. Now one reason is certainly because people in our culture are becoming less religious. But another is because many who do identify as religious, in particular as a Christian, dismiss the value of being committed to a church, right? Attending a church is about what I get. I get to listen to some good teaching, and I get to feel good on Sunday mornings uh, when I attend and go with the people of the church. In belonging to a church, 
or committing to a church, I sacrifice autonomy. And I surrender time and talents and money to serve others. Committing to a church is not about what I get, but what I give up. So Paul contrasts individuals who are outsiders with those who are inside. And his instructions to judge insiders, his instructions to not get mixed up with people who persist in sin, to purge from among, those instructions are not written to Christian leaders, but to everyday Christians, Christians who are identified with a fellowship or with a church body. And that means to be part of the process of judging or excluding those who are on the inside you have to be identified as being on the inside. A non-Christian would not be identified as being on the inside. Someone not committed to a church would also not be identified as being on the inside. When is someone considered inside? When is someone committed to a church? Is it when someone shows up to a Sunday morning gathering one time? That seems really unlikely. How about when someone attends church gatherings twice per month over a period of time, say two years? I mean, our church has had non-Christians or, or people who are not yet willing to submit to the leadership of a, of a church attend with that type of frequency over that duration. And by the way, that's the type of church we want to have, where people have time to wrestle out past hurt time to to wrestle out ways they've been wounded by a church, time they they have to work through doubts and struggles with sin and challenging issues before they commit to and submit to the leadership of a church. There are reasons and seasons to be less committed to a church, but as we understand scripture, we know preserving personal autonomy, being a free agent is outside of God's plan for us as Christians. So admittedly, First City Church asserts, stands in a tradition um, within the church that asserts the importance of church membership in understanding who is committed to a church, who is submitted to the leadership structure of a church, and who is inside the, the church and therefore eligible for church discipline. So members of First City Church... If you were wondering about the benefits of church membership, one of them is that you are eligible for church discipline. Congratulations. Now, I I kind of joke the the threat of excommunication from a church is a blessing. But to have a formal structure holding you accountable to your profession of faith, that is a blessing. And if you have a spouse or if you have children, to have a formal structure, a formal church structure holding you accountable to that profession, that is very much a blessing to them. I know some of us question the logic of church membership. I've done it myself. I get it. We do not find a passage in scripture about Joe and Jennifer becoming a member of First Baptist or Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. There are no explicit instructions to that end. It's more implicit. 
Scripture instructs Christians to be committed to God's people in a way you are consistently present among them. Living out the one another's of Scripture. Not so much for your benefit, by the way, but to the benefit of brothers and sisters in Christ. And Scripture instructs a Christian to be committed to a church in a way he or she is willing to submit and obey the leadership structure of a church. In becoming a church member, an individual is saying, I'm a Christian. I do not live for myself. I live for the glory of the cross and for brothers and sisters in Christ. And I will submit to the eldership and leadership of this church body. When a church affirms someone as a member, that church is affirming that someone has sacrificed individual identity for the sake of household identity, to be part of a family. And when that church affirms someone as a member, that church affirms that individual has responded to the message of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and has been converted to Christianity. Now, this does not mean someone who is not a member of a church is not a Christian. But a church has not affirmed that they are. So so as the church interacts with that individual, they would not be subject to practices of church discipline. You cannot purge an individual from among you who is not willing to be part of that defined group. So, if you want to preserve autonomy, if you don't want to submit to a church, if you want to avoid accountability for sin, if you don't want to face the consequences of church discipline, don't be committed to a church. Okay, so first two implications, care about the health of your church and be committed to your church. The third one is be courageous to have hard conversations. As we care about the church, as we are committed to the church, we embrace, we, we embrace a bit of an expression, have the conversation. We've said excluding someone from a Christian fellowship is the final step of a method to confront someone who persists in sin. It's the final step because that process begins when brothers and sisters in Christ are willing to confront fellow Christians about concerning behavior, about viewing habits, about drinking habits, about inappropriate ways a man or woman is interacting with another person who is not their husband or wife, about ways in which someone is parenting. Brothers and sisters in Christ need to have the courage to have hard conversations. Too often, when we encounter concerning behavior, rather than talk to individuals, we talk about individuals. We'll share with a friend or fellow Christian, and rather than go talk to them, we conclude, we just, we just need to pray for this person. Or maybe, maybe as we talk about this person, we wonder, why hasn't Pastor Chris, why hasn't he had this conversation? Or why hasn't our gospel community leader said anything? We are unwilling to step into the part of the process that we are responsible for. Be courageous to have hard conversations. And this brings us to the last implication. When you're aware of situations where others are having hard conversations, be charitable. If you happen to be someone at the receiving end of these 
hard conversations. Take the time to listen. Be humble. When, when we learn about these conversations, the, the person who is confronted, that conversation can quickly develop into blaming and defending and accusing. It can go, it can go sideways in all sorts of crazy. That person can then go to others and claim people are being judgmental, claim people are not being fair, claim people are making accusations. Be careful how you receive such grievances. It is one thing to have compassion. It is another to agree with a frustrated party when you do not understand the perspective of everything going on behind the scenes. So as you're aware of situations where everyday Christians are having the courage to have hard conversations, pray for them and be charitable. As we conclude, Paul is pressing on us to consider how we react to people who persist in sin, how we uphold principles of morality and how we uphold principles of loving and pursuing and relating to people. As we image our Savior Jesus, as we reflect on the cross of Christ, may that form how we react. When it does, we will not be content shunning non-Christians. Because our, we know that our Savior was sent to the world to save sinners. We know that he was sent to sit with them and eat with them and to bear their sins even as they beat and bruised him. Likewise, as we reflect on Christ, we will not be content when people persist in sin within the church. When they use the grace of God as a license or an excuse to live however they want to live. May we be the type of church that reacts rightly to people who persist in sin, growing to reflect the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.